Methamphetamine abuse is exploding across rural America. So we're talking today about a scourge that is going across this country, which is called crystal meth. There were times that I went to bed starving to death. I mean, there were literally nights I would cry myself to sleep because I was so hungry. I took the 9mm and stuck it in my mouth and fired. These are the stories of those who had a relationship with one of the most addictive drugs ever known to law enforcement, methamphetamine. Known on the streets as meth, crystal, rock, jib, crank, ice, and many other names, it's a drug that has paved a road of devastation in the millions of dollars and in lives. Meth is cheaper, it's pure, it's widely available, and is devastating people. Transcribed from 33 interviews, professor and author Dr. Rashi Shukla delved into the meth culture in Oklahoma for an exhausting and arduous four years. I really was not prepared for what I was getting into. And the, from the very first interview, I knew that I didn't know very much. Hi, I'm your host, Dr. David Nelson, a professor at the University of Central Oklahoma in the Department of Mass Communication. The stories in the podcast can be difficult to listen to, but have a raw essence to them that provide a look into the lives of meth addicts, dealers, and manufacturers. Episode 8 of Season 2 of the podcast, The 33, Methamphetamine, a love story. I'm your host, Dr. David Nelson. Of course, the author of the book is my co-host, Dr. Rashi Shukla. And you may be wondering why we're playing the Jerry Reed big hit song, East Bound and Down from the Smokey and Bandit movie. Well, if you remember anything about the movie, other than the Black Trans Am it is the truckers, right? A lot of truckers in the movie. And so today we are going to talk about trucker number one of the three truckers who Dr. Rashi Shukla spoke with and interviewed for her book, Methamphetamine, A Love Story. His name is Bryant, so we're gonna get to him in just a few minutes. But of course, Dr. Rashi Shukla, we do have some other stories that have happened around the world regarding meth addiction and meth abuse and arrest. And what do you have in your hands? Well, I have an article that was published in January 4th, 2023. So at the very end of last year, there was an arrest made in Priceville, Alabama, where law enforcement officials smelled a strong chemical odor that was like, that smelled like methamphetamine. And they basically made an arrest of two individuals individuals that they believe were manufacturing meth. So, you know, we, we tend to talk about this as something that is not, you know, as a past phenomenon, but there's evidence suggesting that it is still something that is going on, even though it's not at a quantity like we used to see back in the day. Um, and interestingly enough, this article from yesterday, um, U.S. agents on the southern border of Arizona seized about 440 pounds of what they believe are precursor chemicals that would be used to make fentanyl. And so, whereas we've seen lots of fentanyl busts coming in on the borders, this is what they're saying is a chilling sign that producers might be moving more toward making or manufacturing fentanyl here in the United States rather than just transporting it in. 
Of course, as we have mentioned several times over our past podcast, it is an international problem. We have a story here, too, from Australia and in a community called Chapel Hill, Australia, a backyard methamphetamine manufacturing operation was seized and busted. And the police, of course, commented that it just again shows that drug manufacturers just really don't care about the safety of the community, according to the uh, detective superintendent there in uh, Australia. So, again, an international problem. But here locally, Catherine Sweeney, a state impact reporter, did a story for National Public Radio on a collaborative effort in Tulsa County to help fight the methamphetamine epidemic right here in the region of Oklahoma. And here is what she included in her story. Health and law enforcement officials often call methamphetamine the state's greatest drug threat. At more than 600 deaths a year, it kills more Oklahomans via overdose than any other illicit drug, including fentanyl. So again, that was Catherine Sweeney, state impact reporter, and a recent story she did for National Public Radio. So we do know that meth is killing more people in Oklahoma than fentanyl, but fentanyl is getting all the media coverage. Then there were the truckers. Well, Dr. Shukla, let's now move into Bryant. Let's talk more about trucker number one, one of the three you interviewed. And Dr. Shukla, you know, one of the recent analyses of data from the American Addiction Centers found that nearly 28% of truck driving respondents do consume drugs. Marijuana, of course, meth were included in that list of drugs. And of these, 21.3% consumed amphetamines and 2.2% consumed cocaine. So, you know, there is a stereotype about truckers that they have to take something, right, in order to stay up and travel long distances in just a short period of time. So often that's the purpose. That is the reason why they take the drug to stay awake for more hours so they can cover more miles, which means more money in their pocket. So what can you say about Brian? What, uh, what did he share with you when you were doing the research for your book? So I met Bryant um, in December of 2010, and he was a 41-year-old Caucasian male. It was interesting because up to this point, I hadn't had any insights into, you know, the the way methamphetamine played within anybody who was involved in, in trucking. And I wouldn't, you know, wasn't even sampling for that at the time. But the first sign should have been when he um, talked to me on the phone. He said, meet me at mile marker blank, you know, like mile marker 225. <laughs> well, I've lived in Oklahoma, you know, for decades, you know, most of my life as an adult, all of my life as an adult, really, except for grad school. And I had no idea where to even find mile marker or whatever it was. And so when he explained to me where it was, you know, it's very simple now. And he said, I'll be meeting you outside. I'll be wearing this color of a shirt. And when I showed up at this restaurant located right off the you know, interstate, he was outside and he was waiting exactly where he said he would be waiting. And he had a, he had a table already set up for us. And the only other time that I had seen that before is when I had gone out and interviewed a police chief years ago, you know, they took me to a restaurant and already had everything set up. And it was fascinating because he was not hiding who he was, even though the uh, institutional review board 
and the research guide said, you know, you don't collect their names and I didn't collect his name. You know, he was very open about, you know, I'm in recovery and this is who I am. He had artifacts. He brought a certificate showing that he was now a peer recovery support specialist through like the Department of Mental Health and Substance Abuse. He had photos of his parents. He had brought his criminal record and he would play a critical role in introducing me to two of his peers who were also individuals who were involved in trucking and who had all, you know, been involved in the world of methamphetamine for decades together. So, but for Bryant, I wouldn't have this slice of the methamphetamine story. So Dr. Shukla, I remember Bryant talking about rules. What did he say about his rules when selling methamphetamine? Before we even started the interview, he started talking. And the first thing that he wanted me to know was he talked about the rules that he had. And he said, you know, I didn't sell to children. He said, I didn't allow children to be around it. Um, He called them like their rules or ethics. Um, He said, even my own stepson, if we were using meth or cooking when we were in the house, he wouldn't be around it. And he said he didn't take kids on dope deals. And the big one, which will tie into what we'll talk about in a little bit, had to do with um, intravenous use of meth. He basically said one of my rules was if you couldn't put a needle in your own arm, then don't ask me to do it because I'm not going to stick it in there. So this experience, this idea of not able to put a needle in your own arm comes from a past experience? Yes, it does. You know, Brian, although he had dabbled with cigarettes when he was, you know, before he was the age of 10 and started like experimenting with alcohol, it, he was 14 years old the first time that he ever used methamphetamine and had the opportunity to use it. He talks about being kind of on the outskirts of town in this trailer and he was with some older kids partying and it was interesting because he talks about the fact that he used to engage physically with some of these older people and that's how he had respect being 14 and a man that he you know quote names Jay was there and he and he kept seeing these people go in and out of this room and he's like what's going on in that room and Jay was like hey you want to do this and he he was like, I don't know what it is. And he said, well, I'll shoot it. He didn't know what a needle was. He didn't know what that meant. He says, I was brave. Needles didn't scare me. And so Jay basically takes out the equipment and shoots it up for him. You know, so you think about him having this rule about if you can't shoot it up, then I'm not going to do it for you. Well, at 14 years old, here's a young man who's having an experienced intravenous meth user physically shoot him up the first time. And then Jay asks him, do you hear bells and whistles? And he's like, what are you talking about? And he's like, well, let's do more. And then he you know, ends it by saying, I knew I was high and it was after being awake for two or three days that he really knew. But this whole idea of bells and whistles kind of trickles through his interview where this seems to be something that he, once he experiences it, once he experiences this rush of doing it, you know, intravenously, which later in his interview, he says, it took my breath away you know, and, and the, the heightened sex that comes with it later and all of the other things that come with it later. He just basically says he's always chasing that, those bells and whistles. And that kind of goes back to what Dr. Christopher Hill said, right? That somebody had to tell him how to feel. Right. When he put meth and in intravenously, do you not feel the bells and whistles? Um, uh, no, am I supposed to? You know, so somebody always tells these 
newbies, if you will, how to feel or what you should be feeling. Right, right. And, you know, for Bryant, as with many people, this experience this night at 14 years old was a Rubicon. And although he would later say he didn't regret it in the sense that it made him who he was and he was proud of being someone who, you know, found himself later out of the lifestyle. And then he says from that point there, it didn't go up. It went straight down. And I watched a lot of things go by that I probably could have changed differently had I not been in that room. Dr. Shukla, of course, Bryant was in that room. He was introduced to meth, and then he starts spiraling and getting involved heavily in both distribution, manufacturing, dealing meth. How did this all come about, and what did he share about that? Well, you know, he is one of the individuals who ends up becoming heavily immersed in the methamphetamine lifestyle. So although he starts out as a trucker and, you know, at the beginning, he says, my my encounters with police were all related to tickets while well, I was become you know, driving and being a trucker. But by the end, everything he did was drug related. He eventually loses his trucking, trucking company. He starts um, transporting drugs, you know, probably before he loses the company or as he's working with someone. He talks about at one point, one of the biggest risks he took was driving with 37 pounds of meth across state lines, which is a huge risk. Um, and then he gets, he's in and out of prison. So when I asked him about, you know, tell me about how many times you've been arrested or what kind of crime you've committed, you know, he actually made this noise. He's like, we don't have enough paper on the table. He <laughs> said, I've been in and out of jail since I was 18 years old. So he starts at 14 and by 18, he's starting this kind of um, rotating door through the criminal justice system where he says, I've been in trouble for everything. And he mentions, you know, Later, when he starts cooking, being in possession of more than nine grams of pseudoephedrine, but he gets involved with domestic violence with his now ex-wife, burglary, assault and battery, trying to escape from a police officer. But he just becomes wholeheartedly immersed in this drug lifestyle um, and just goes all in. Dr. Shukla O'Brien even talks about the violent world he was part of while abusing meth. Uh, what did he add about this experience he had as a trucker in the violence that he experienced while using meth and driving a truck. Well, you know, in addition to mentioning that he was beat up in jail or prison multiple times while he was involved, he talks about, you know, as when I asked him the question about violence, his response was, how much violence do you want? Mm -hmm. And he talks about being engaged with some of the biker gangs and he runs around with someone named the enforcer. And so basically, if someone owed somebody money or drugs or whatever, he says, quote, we would beat the shit out of them, take it, whatever it took to get it. We would take their kids' toys. It didn't matter. And so he becomes immersed in this world where he's engaged with violence. People are committing violence on him. He becomes physically and mentally abusive with his ex-wife, who at that time he's married to, to the point of where when they were using meth and immersed in it, he even describes this three-day period where he talks about fist fighting with her for three days mm. until they were so fatigued that he just, you know, passed out or went to sleep and then woke up and started shooting meth again. 
So violence permeated his life. It was part of his life. And it was part of the reason where he says there were certain places now that he couldn't even go back to because, you know, for whatever reason, he was able to escape this world and escape this life, which some people who become heavily immersed in dark things aren't able to do. And so violence was a huge part of it. And it, and just like we've talked about in some of the other episodes, he didn't go into as much detail on some of the things that he did. We just have like this surface view of really bad things that were done. But if you look in it deeper, it's probably a lot more disturbing than even what he was willing to share. You're listening to Episode 8, Season 2 of the podcast, The 33, Methamphetamine, a love story written by my guest, Dr. Rashi Shukla, and my co-host. I'm your host, Dr. David Nelson, Professor of Mass Communication at the University of Central Oklahoma. And in today's episode, we are talking about trucker number one of three truckers that Dr. Rashi Shukla interviewed for her book. And today, it is Bryant. Dr. Shukla, Bryant talks about learning to cook meth. Where did he learn to cook meth and from whom did he learn to cook meth? Well, Bryant, you know, he had gone to prison twice in the course of this time that he was in and out of jail and in and out of the criminal justice system. And interestingly enough, and not surprisingly, he learned to cook meth while in prison. He mentioned that he was always intrigued with cooking and he had kind of been around it and seen it before this time. And he was at this point about, according to him, about 16 years into his use. So he's not someone who goes right from using to cooking. It takes a long time that he's immersed and involved in this dealing. And so he's in prison and this man says, look, I'll teach you how to do it. And he got excited and he started researching it. And so he basically gets books and he's looking on the computer and he's learning how to, how to cook it. And at that point, you're really learning it, you know, more just someone telling you, you're not actually, you know, physically doing it. So he learns how to cook it, gets out of prison about six, seventh months later, he says things were getting rough with his ex-wife. So he's like, look, I know how to make some money. So he goes out, they go, goes with his friend, goes on top of a hill. His friend shows him now in person how to cook it. And I'm not clear if this is the same person that showed it to him in prison or not. That really wasn't made clear. And so he literally says, it's one of them deals. You learn the basics and then you figure it out. Like washing your dishes. Your mama shows you how to wash the dishes, but then you do it on your own. And so he learns how to cook mostly with this anhydrous ammonia style. And he kind of perfects this method of cooking. And um, another thing just to think about is when I asked people about cooking, you know, I wanted to verify if people were actually cooks, you know, and did you really cook meth? And he was one of the people that was hesitant. He said, I'm not going to tell it to you step by step. I don't want it to get out there. But then he did provide me with enough information to very basically validate as an outsider as much as I could that he indeed was a cook and he cooked for a period of about eight years, you know, getting closer and closer to the end of his time in meth. Um, according to his own story, cooked more than hundreds of times, possibly even a thousand times, heavily so, sometimes daily for the last six to eight years of his involvement in the life. What's fascinating about that story is that he learned how to cook meth in prison. Yeah, and people that know um, anything about criminal justice, you know, when you put people in prison, people sometimes refer to it like crime school. 
Mm. You know, that's where you're going to learn how to, whether it's not just commit crime, but to be a better criminal of whatever type of crime it is, put someone in a place where there's a lot of other people that know how to do this. And, you know, so Bryant was one of those people who, who, you know, furthered his immersion in methamphetamine and in this lifestyle as a result of the networks and connections he made while incarcerated. There's something wrong with the world today. I don't know what it is. Something's wrong with our eyes. We're living on the edge. Dr. Shukla, he talks about living on the edge. So what did he mean by living on the edge without falling off that cliff? You know, Bryant was addicted to all of it, the lifestyle. He talks about the rush of not just making meth, not the rush of just intravenously using meth, the rush of not getting caught, the rush of, you know, the finances, the rush of the high. There was so much in it that he was addicted addicted to. And he talks about the fun he had. And one of the moments in the interview that I just remember even to this day, it kind of gave me the chill. It was about when he described that it wasn't about just going to the edge, but leaning over it to see what would happen. And he talks about, I like to drive fast. I like to live on the edge. And methamphetamine puts you so much over leaning, not just being on the edge, but leaning to the point of, are you going to come out? Are you going to break? Are you going to go? Are you going to fall to the ground or are you going to stand up? And, you know, he kind of compares it to like bungee jumping and ironically spiders, which he doesn't like. (laughs) But then he says, I had a lot of fun driving them trucks. There's nothing like being, and I know this sounds bad on the legal side of it. There's nothing like having a hundred thousand pounds behind you, live animals such as cattle going 120 miles an hour or 130 miles an hour everything going by at sonic speeds. It was fun. It's that edge. You fall into a curve. Everything has to be in sync. And it's just an awesome, awesome thing. And I never drove on a highway without thinking about truckers driving high on meth after that ever again. Absolutely. Yeah. And have you ever gone 120 miles an hour in any vehicle besides 100,000 pounds of weight behind you? No, we have some speed limits that are 80 miles an hour and I barely even go 80. I cannot imagine what he was talking about. And that whole idea of not just going to the edge, but pushing it and leaning Mm. over again. I remember sitting in front of him and just getting the chills thinking, I don't have that. So this is just another example of the risks that abusers put themselves in and the community and those around them. Yeah. And I'll just, I'll just say for a disclaimer's sake, you know, I don't want people to listen to this and think everybody they pass in a truck on the highway is on drugs, right? you know, but, but this was a fascinating insight into one aspect of this that again, wasn't just him and, and wasn't just the people I talked to about, you know, what some of the risks people take while they're immersed in methamphetamine or any drug lifestyle for that matter. Well, even in smoking a bandit, they were doing about 70, 75. And I thought, that was really fast back then. Is this fun? I forgot to tell you, I'm uh, running blocker for 400 cases of illegal proof. When the speed limit was only 55 when that movie was made. Dr. Shukla Bryant finally decides to get clean, you know, rebuild his life. And at what point in his life did he 
come to this conclusion that he needed to be out of this lifestyle of abusing meth? You know, it's it's more of a journey than a destination. And, you know, I asked Brian at one point about if he had hit rock bottom. And he was like, I hit rock bottom for a year. And he said the last year I quit a hundred times. Mm. And he said it's, you know, not really about that. You know, for him, rock bottom wasn't just a one-time event. It was something that he traveled through over time until he finally came to this end. He was so heavily immersed in life and it had a traumatic effect or impact on everyone, his, his relationship, his family, his parents, you know, everybody is collateral damage in the world of addiction. And so he finally gets to this point where he talks about his last arrest. He was facing a $52,000 bond and, you know, he had been in and out of prison. A man in prison asks him if he'd be willing to pray with him. And so he talks about that. And on the way to the last time he was arrested, the the law enforcement officer who pulled him over, you know, asked him if he wanted to call his dad. And, you know, these are relationships. He His parents had been married 43 years and he described them as awesome people, but he drugged them to hell with his addiction, which is, again, not uncommon and not unique to Bryant. And so he talks about those two experiences, the man in prison that prayed with him and then the um, being able to talk to his father on the way to to jail that last time as two critical factors that helped him get to the point where he, you know, reaches out to God and says, I need help. I need out of this. And I want to make amends. So Dr. Shukla, he, of course, at this time has a girlfriend as he's recovering. And this is one of the aspects of this podcast is that all these people you have interviewed are recovering. So he has a little support system now, finally, in his world. Yes. Share more about that. Well, he mentioned, you know, that his girlfriend that he has now, and they're both clean and sober, you know, his girlfriend wrote him a text and he was mentioning that. And he said, you know, it really made me feel good and it stuck, stuck with me. And he said, she was asking me if I felt nervous about this. And I said, no. And he actually looks at his cell phone is like checking the text at the time. And I kind of laughed at it because I was like, I feel nervous when I go interview someone. And yet here's someone who's coming and going to share all of these things. And he was like, I didn't feel nervous. And in the text, his girlfriend had said to him, she said, it's not that often that people who have overcome something addicting can go back and give back. She said, God has plans for him. And he said, you know, I believe that with all my heart. So I'm okay with my path. And that's one of the reasons he didn't have regrets. And at the time that we met, not only had he made amends and repaired his relationship with his parents, he had become friends with his ex-wife that he had abused physically and mentally for, you know, a long period of time. He had even spoken at the Oklahoma Capitol as part of an organization to share the story. And he had become a peer recovery support specialist where he was now committed to helping others leave the world of methamphetamine. just listened to episode eight of season two of the podcast, The 33, based on the book by my co-host, Dr. Rashi Shukla, Methamphetamine, A Love Story. And today we did talk about Bryant, trucker number one, and we're going to move to trucker number two, Patrick, another very interesting story. And Dr. Rashi Shukla right now is just shaking her head. Yes, yes, you don't want to miss that episode as we talk about trucker number two, Patrick. 
So join us then as we look into the darkness of those who battled with their addiction to meth and recovered from that dark period in their life. Now I'm going to leave you with Jerry Reed's East Bound and Down. Have a good day. East Bound and Down, put it up and We're going to do what they say can be done.